Welcome to Dates with Death, the Paris Institute for Critical Thinking's podcast series dedicated to death and all that comes with it. For a long time, the topic of death has been considered as taboo in the West, even almost completely banished from our lives. This has come as a price, so we take it upon ourselves to re-inaugurate the quintessential philosophical task, according to Cicero, namely to meditate upon death. In my second date, it is my honor to be accompanied by Professor Sarah Isles Johnston. Sarah is a classicist specialized in ancient Greece. She is a distinguished professor of religion at Ohio State University and has written a number of books that are of great interest to this podcast series. So hello, Sarah, and welcome. It's very nice to be here. Thank you for joining us. Now, I would like to begin by asking you the question of why death? I started the first podcast in this series with the same question, and I think I will continue doing it. I think it is always interesting to see how someone recognizes or acknowledges one's interest. And I think it is even more interesting when this interest is death. So, Sarah, when, why, and how did you become interested in this peculiar object of study? I'm glad that you warned me you were going to ask this question, because as I thought about how I'd answer it, I realized I had never really um, posed that question to myself in any detail. So here's what I've come up with. Uh, I realized that this interest found me when I was very young. I have no conscious recollection of, of me deciding that I was going to be interested in it. But as far back as I can remember, I've been fascinated by ghost stories, vampire stories, whatever treats that question of what is the world beyond life like? And can you cross back and forth from one place to the other? As I thought more about the question in the last few days, um, I realized that I think I was attracted to it as a child because it uh, it was about how what are the rules that you have to follow in order to be successful not only in life but in the bigger picture of life and the afterlife. And so, ghost stories and similar stories are very much about those rules. But if, if you want to put it differently, what led to me working on it as a scholar, it was that after the birth of my second son, um, he became very ill. And I'm happy to say that he's now a strapping, healthy 36-year-old. But there was a question of whether he would make it. And I began to think, wow, um, in days and earlier cultures when many babies died at birth, how in the world did women, and for that matter, um, men, the fathers, deal with this. And that led to me beginning to do research on how the ancient Greeks approached death. Not only the death of infants, but that's where I started. Okay, uh, That's quite interesting. That That's also similarly how I became interested in limbo. So uh, that's, that's uh, the, the medieval place, not the ancient uh, Greek place, but that's the medieval place where the little kids went. Right. And they died. So that's that's okay. That's very interesting. Thank you. Now, the second question that we probably need to get out of the way before we get to investigating death in ancient Greece a bit more profoundly is whether it is possible to give a general description of how these ancient people understood death. Now, we moderns have our own understanding of death, but our idea 
colored as it is by centuries of Christianity, at least here in the West, is not the same as that of the Greek from antiquity. So how are we to understand death in Hades in ancient Greek civilization? I'd start by reaching back to one of the, the first scholars to really um, think about death in a serious way, and that is Philippe Ariès. And I'm aware I'm speaking to a French person. I hope I'm pronouncing that gentleman's name correctly. I'm actually but Belgian. I'm actually Belgian. Oh, oh well, okay, but I bet your French is better than mine. Anyway, um, his book, which was on the different ways that um, people have understood death, and he was particularly interested in medieval understandings, but not only, distinguished between what he called uh, the tamed death paradigm. In other words, cultures in which death was familiar. Mm -hmm. It was not desirable. You didn't want to die, but it was not as big a deal as it is in most of our cultures today, where mm -hmm. death is a stranger. We are afraid of it not only because it's death, but because it's very odd and weird to us. And um, the development of ghost stories into what is now a very sophisticated literary genre and, of course, filmic genre as well, has only pushed this further. Death is now a, a very frightening thing to most of us. Mm -hmm. So the Greeks, in contrast, although they had ghost stories and, and all of that, um, death was sort of a fact of life for them. Mm -hmm. You asked me about Hades as well. Yeah. Um, I'll have a lot to say about Hades in response to some of the specific questions that you okay. mentioned you were going to ask me. But the overall picture is that uh, in contrast to Christian beliefs, which are those that are most familiar to, to most of us in the West, the Greek afterlife was not strongly divided between here's one afterlife for those who have been very good and here's another afterlife for those who have been bad. In other words, it's not a heaven and a hell type of afterlife. Almost everyone, in earliest Greek belief at least, almost everyone went to this vast sort of dark, musty, cavernous place called Hades, mm -hmm. where nothing is really happening. In fact, in many ancient portrayals of it, it's quite boring. The ghosts are assumed to have lost all or most of their memory. And therefore, it's an existence that is really dull, but mm -hmm. it's not particularly horrifying in the way that Christian hell is horrifying. Yes, yes, thank you. Now, in 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 my research of of, of the past, I, I became confronted with the fact that there is this extreme porosity of the boundaries between the living and the dead. That is that there is an active interaction between the living and the dead uh, by, for example, means of divination or through the interaction with ghosts. Now, I remember one of my great teachers of antiquity telling that the ancient world was not solely a world filled with gods and people, but as I would add, it was also a world full of dead people. Now, could you tell us a bit more about how the ancient Greek handled this porosity? I'm certain that different uh, that that it is different between different groups of people, and I'm also sure that this changes uh, over centuries in the many centuries in which ancient Greek culture flourished. I'm sure that for most modern people, uh, what we would say is that this was very discomforting uh, as the basic attitude towards the wandering that discomfort and maybe even fear would be the main characteristics. But those are just two of the myriads of ways 
that people in ancient Greece handled the interaction with the dead. Am I right here or is this wrong? Yes, you're right that uh, the Greek concept of a boundary between life and death was very, very porous. And here's where maybe I need to get into a brief historical overview so that um, the rest of what I'm going to say will have some context. In the earliest stages of Greek ideas about the afterlife, as far as we can recreate them, um, essentially, as I said a moment ago, everyone is going to end up in this same place that mm. is boring and dusty and dark, but it's not particularly horrific. Mm. Then there develops this idea at some point that, aha, actually, after death, this is when things begin to get evened up. If you have been a murderer or a rapist while you're alive, <clears throat> you will be punished for having done those things after death. They don't have so much to say at this stage about possible rewards for having been good, but they begin to get interested as time goes on in the idea that, you know, if, if you know that your neighbor is a murderer and yet you see him get off scot-free, at least during life, perhaps he's going to get punished later on. Mm -hmm. And then they develop an idea in response to that, that, aha, well, if you're a little bit worried about whether you're going to get punished after death, you can get a sort of get out of jail free ticket that will ensure that you don't get punished. And this is when we get the development of what are called the mystery cults, mm -hmm. um, the cult of Demeter and Persephone at Eleusis, the cult of the god Dionysus. The reason, and, and if you join one of these mystery cults, no matter what you've done while you're alive, you will have a good afterlife. Indeed, it sounds like it could be a very good afterlife because there will be feasting and drinking and sunlight and all kinds of other pleasant things. The reason that I wanted to start with that historical overview is that once those later stages come along, the porosity becomes more significant both because the idea of what people are doing after death is more complex and therefore the living start thinking about them more and the possibility that they might return, but also because the living become more concerned with what's going on to their loved ones in the afterlife. Mm -hmm. So for example, although there were always festivals of the gods, uh, sorry, festivals of the dead in ancient Greece, in other words, festivals that are a little bit like Dia de Muertos nowadays mm -hmm. in South America, where you invite the dead back. Mm -hmm. These festivals become more elaborate as history goes on. Um, so I'm now going to pause and make a further division on what I'm saying, that the, the dead can come back in ways that are terrible, mm -hmm. that you want to stop them from doing. Uh, for example, um, in literature, in Aeschylus's Oresteia, you get Orestes being threatened that if you do not avenge your father's death, the ghost of your father is going to come back and ensure that you get boils all over your body and that you go mad with fear and all of this. Mm. But when Orestes does avenge the father's death by killing his mother, who had been the murderer, then the mother's ghost come back, comes back mm. and makes all kind of trouble. So these were real beliefs. This is not just a literary device to make the Oresteia entertaining. Mm. People were very worried about that. And I can say some more about specific types of ghosts that they worried about in a moment. Mm. But at the same time, there also um, there are good ghosts that can come back. For example, if you have paid proper respect to your father 
after he dies, if you need help, you might call upon his ghost to come back and help you. Mm. Now, what that actually looks like is anyone's guess. We don't have a lot of <laughs> details as to how the father comes back to help. But so there is a lot of porosity going back, uh, going on. And what I've just given you is a very general overview. There's a lot of specifics that I can tell you more about if you'd like to hear. You know, I, I was just, just one additional question maybe. Um, did this, was it, was it always in, in a direct way or, or was this by means also by somebody like a, a priest or, or, or a figure, a priest-like figure that helped through that or was it in a much more direct way between the living and the dead and no interaction or no position or person in between? It could be either. There were okay. plenty of do-it-yourself methods. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, you could go to the gravestone of the person that you wanted to come back, let's say again, it's your father, and you could make a little offering on the grave, such as pouring a mixture of honey and water into the soil so that it would reach the dead. And you could say, oh, please, father, come back and help me protect our land against the neighbors who are trying to seize it or whatever. So that's a do-it-yourself method. Um, you might also, <laughs> there were do-it-yourself methods for calling the dead back for less savory purposes. Like <laughs> if you wanted to um, um, seduce someone and you weren't very successful at doing it on your own, you might call back one of a group of dead that I collectively call the restless dead, the dead who are not quite firmly settled in Hades, who are kind of in between life and death. You might call one of them back and order them, you know, go make that woman come to my bed, pull her towards me. Okay, so those are do-it-yourself methods. But there were also experts in these things. Um, the Greek word for them was goetes, mm -hmm. uh, or in the singular, a goes, but we'll just call them magicians for the sake of simplicity. So you could go to one of these magicians if you really wanted um, high quality treatment of these <laughs> kinds of issues. And that magician would know more effective ways to compel the restless dead, for example, to come up and do your will. Okay. Yeah, thank you. You just mentioned the, the restless death, and, and that's obviously my next question, because there is this group of the dead that have always attracted me. And those are obviously the restless dead. And you wrote a, a splendid book, a, a brilliant book even about this topic now. But before I will ask you to give some clarification about this specific group of dead, I would like to share a short anecdote. Now, when I was doing my research on my course on the afterlife, I discovered that not only did the Greek and also the Romans have this rather tight group of feared restless dead, but so did the Polish formal community in the 19th century, in the late 19th century. And my biggest surprise was that these groups of restless dead were pretty much the same. So ancient Greek, ancient Roman and modern Polish farmers feared the same dead people. And they feared them basically at the same places as well, because also the places are important. And I thought that, well, this is one hell of a historical coincidence, or, or could one even say constancy? Maybe you can come back on this as well. But anyway, could you please tell us a bit more? about these restless dead in the ancient Greek world? Well, yeah, but first I wanna start with your Polish farmer. That's okay. a fascinating story. Um, you're absolutely right. Uh, and it's not just within the European tradition. Essentially all over the world, we find the same three categories of dead 
being believed to be restless and therefore mm. to some degree to be potential causes of trouble. And those mm. three categories are people who die too early. So that would include, for instance, children. Mm. Um, in many, many cultures, it also includes women who die without marrying and bearing children because it's thought, well, that's what women are supposed to do. So mm. if a woman dies a virgin or if a woman dies married but without producing children, of course, she's incomplete and she's going to be restless. So um, that's the first category, people who are um, who have died too early. People who die violently, and um, I don't mean in war. War is a special category in most cultures because to die as a warrior is virtuous and honorable. Mm. By violently, I mean if you're murdered mm. um, or if you commit suicide. These are thought to be situations that are going to make the ghost angry and restless and in some cultures, including the Greeks, indeed, perhaps um, maroon the ghost geographically between the world of the living and the world of the dead, and therefore unable to access even the, the very small amount of comfort that Hades has. Hmm. And, and then the third category of people who are likely to become restless are the unburied, hmm. those who have not had proper funeral rituals, whether that be because you know, they die out in the forest alone while they're on a walk, an animal has killed them and no one finds their body. In other words, they're accidentally unburied or because people have left them unbur unburied for vengeful reasons. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that was done to certain categories of murderers in certain ancient Greek cities was that they would not only be executed, but their body would be cast outside the boundary of the city mm -hmm. and no one was allowed to bury it. This mm -hmm. is the basis of Sophocles' great tragedy, the Antigone, um, mm -hmm. indeed, because Antigone gets in trouble because she buries the body of her brother, whom the king of the city has decreed should lie unburied. Mm -hmm. So those are the three categories. And um, to say more about some of the Greek examples. What particularly fascinated me, and this again has an autobiographical um, tie-in, after my infant son nearly died, I got very interested in stories about women who died without successfully producing children. Mm. Um, these women are thought to become ghosts that are more like what we might call demons because they're imagined to be partly human in form, partly animal in form. They come back and they particularly attack women um, while they're in, in labor to bear children. In other words, they come back and they stop other women from successfully doing what they themselves could not do. Um, some of them come back, the ones that die as, as virgins, come back and drive other virgins to madden suicide. Um, there are various Greek stories, not just myths, but actual reports of cities where all the teenage girls kind of go crazy and many of them hang themselves and others try to hang themselves but are stopped by their parents. And what joins all of these cases together is reports that there's a terrible ghost that has been visiting these girls and that, um, well, the ghost then becomes linked up with local belief that a virgin had killed herself many years before. And so people start to think, oh my goodness, mm. it's the ghost of this virgin who has come mm -hmm. back to drive mm. our daughters crazy. Mm. 
Um, perhaps I'll pause there and uh, <laughs> ask you what else you would like to know about the Restless Dead. No, there's also this the, the, the issue of the place that is also something that, that reminded me and that I found with the ancient Greek and with the Polish farmers. There was the near water is always a problematic place and also near crossroads. And, and you wrote a book about Hecate and if I'm not mistaken, she was the goddess of the crossroads or something similar to that. So maybe you can say so also something about the place and the constancy also of these places to come back all through history. Yeah, crossroads in particular are a constant um, place, again, not just transhistorically in, in European cultures, but around the world. And there's various mm. theories as to why crossroads are viewed that way. The one that I like the best kind of draws on the work of the late anthropologist Mary Douglas. Mm -hmm. And that is the idea that where the roads cross, you have a kind of nowhere space. It's neither this road nor that road. It's, it's a combination of the roads, but therefore not really belonging to either of them. And places like this, which scholars call liminal places, yes. yeah, exactly. um, another instance is the, the threshold of the door when you're neither mm -hmm. inside or outside. Places like these, since they're thought to be nowhere, are thought to be places that the ghosts or the demons, first of all, naturally congregate, mm -hmm. but also congregate because they're places that people forget to protect. So you might have amulets in your house to protect your house, and you might have a statue of Hecate outside your house, but at that moment that you're crossing the threshold to go into the house, for just that split second, you're in no man's land, and therefore you're easier prey. And there are really cool medieval stories about how um, some of these ghosts of virgins who persecute later mothers and young children um, play on this by, by lurking precisely at those liminal spaces, particularly th the doorway, mm. and then kind of catching a ride on someone who is walking into the house. Okay, okay. Does that have anything to do with witches as well, or am oh, I expanding yeah. here too much? Uh, no, no, not at all. Um, uh, <laughs> that's an interesting question. Right now I'm in the middle of teaching a course at my university that I teach once every two years, which is a history of European witchcraft um, okay. crazes and also European magical beliefs. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I think I must mention Crossroads at least once a week in that class because <laughs> it is one of the consistent uh, details of European descriptions of witches' Sabbaths that they're being conducted at Crossroads mm -hmm. and that the witches are calling up Satan or you know, Satan's emissaries at the crossroads yeah okay now I, there's a, right. yeah there's also at least i was told that i come from a very small town and i remember that if uh, there was a burial the the road from the church to uh, the cemetery was very close by it it's a couple of hundred meters but he the guy in in the car always took the longer road because he didn't have to pass a crossroad and so he always took the longer road so that he didn't go with the the, the casket in uh, the, the car to the crossroad because he feared that he might lose the ghost or, or and, and, and I, I remember reading about that as well that so even when I was told this story maybe it, it was to scare me but there, there's historical fact if, if one uses a fact in that way but anyway the, this brings us to a, a very closely related 
group of, of dead people, and we already talked about that, and, and, and also the restless dead are obviously make part for them, and, and that's the group of ghosts. And, and I believe that you too have a great interest in this topic as you have a forthcoming book on ghost stories, if I'm not mistake, mistaken. Now, that ghosts could be of interest to a classicist should also obviously not surprise for those who don't know, because the first ghost stories uh, in the same genre as we still have today were in fact written in ancient Greece. So could you maybe tell us a bit more about this particular category of the dead and maybe also make some sort of comparison with today's ghosts and the stories we tell about them, if that is possible? Yeah, in ancient Greece and in most, um, again, Western, I, I really only know the Western world. I don't know that much outside the Western world, but until fairly recently in the Western world, ghost stories tended to be um, basically narrative confirmations of what the culture already believed. So for instance, in the Odyssey, in book 11, when Odysseus goes to the underworld, the first ghost he sees is the ghost of his companion, Elpinor, who died just the previous day. And Odysseus did not have time to bury Elpinor's body before he went to Hades. He set it aside, meaning to bury it when he got back. But Elpinor's ghost rises up out of this pit and um, threatens Odysseus and says, if you do not bury me when you get back to Circe's island, I will become the God's curse upon you. That's literally what the Greek says. But what Elpinor means by that is that uh, in shorthand, the gods will allow him, the ghost, to persecute Odysseus. Well, Odysseus duly buries Elpinor when he gets back. Um, Odysseus sees a lot of other ghosts while he's down there in Hades, but none of them are as threatening and frightening as Elpinor. So that's our first little kind of miniature um, ghost story from ancient Greece. But the story I mentioned a little earlier today, or at least I was mentioning bits and pieces of it, uh, the Oresteia, where first Orestes is told by the Delphic Oracle, by Apollo, if you do not avenge your father, you're going to have boils, you're going to have madness. Um, the ghost is going to rise up out of the ground like a sickness, is what the, the, the Greek says, and make your life unlivable. But then what the ghost of Orestes' mother does is equally wretched. She manages to rouse these goddesses called the Erinoes, or they're sometimes called the Furies. And the Erinoes persecute Orestes mercilessly. They do drive him mad. They chase him all over Greece. He finally finds refuge in Apollo's Delphic Oracle and subsequently um, in Athens. And, the, and Apollo and the goddess Athena finally get Orestes off the hook with the Erinoes, but it's a very dreadful period of life uh, for Orestes. So there are those stories, um, which I'll call kind of high literary ghost stories. And then there's the stories, like I mentioned a, a moment ago about, oh, you know, um, there's this virgin that, that died in our town and maybe that's what the cause of the problem is. But the difference is, that the, the ghost stories that we tell nowadays, and as a genre, they developed in the mid um, 19th century. They particularly um, developed in, in England, but mm -hmm. subsequently in other European cultures. 
they by no means send a clear religious message. They, mm. they don't confirm existing religious beliefs. If anything, and this is what I aim to show in my forthcoming book, um, a lot of them put the reader in a position where he or she begins to question their existing religious beliefs. And if the story is well-written, the reader will slowly open their mind up to the possibility that things that Christianity does not really officially um, agree with anymore might actually be true. And I mean by that ideas such as, um, you know, the angry dead walk. Um, mm. Most Protestants don't believe that, but mm. the job of contemporary ghost stories, or at least some of them, is to make you change your mind about that. Okay. Okay. I don't know whether in France you've yet gotten a relatively new Netflix series called Midnight Mass. Do you know whether that is around yet? Mm, no, no, I don't know. That would be a really good example when it finally gets to French Netflix of what I'm talking about. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And thanks. There's just, if, if, I'm, if I may just add one question here, although that, and, and, and I think you're absolutely right that there is this difference and especially with, with Protestantism coming to the rise and then the ghost stories, I, I've noticed that as well in my research, but I think there is one thing that goes back in these same stories all the way to the past. And, and, and I remember reading, I think if, if it's not the, the if it's it's one of the first ghost stories I read, I don't remember which book it was, but there was already this 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 the sickness of the house, the home that that is is a, a character as well in the story. There's always the change that come back, and these things are also there in 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 the ancient Greek narratives, at least the ones that I found, and they are there again in these modern things. So. Even though the message might have changed, I think the the, the means of, of covering the message is, is still one that, that, that is repeated and then goes back to ancient Greek. Oh, you're absolutely right. Um, and I know the stories that you're you're thinking of, um, which are <clears throat> sort of the typical um, uh, ghost that has suffered something while alive, coming back mm -hmm. to either avenge him or herself or to... Um, compel other people to avenge him or herself. You're, yeah, or you're simply right. sim simply ask to be buried in a decent way. Yes. Mm. Yep. I know exactly the story you're talking about, and that is precisely what the ghost is, in fact, demanding. Mm. Okay. And when so the person, when the protagonist in the story, then duly digs up the corpse, he finds that the corpse indeed has chains wrapped or yes. the skeleton of the, the corpse has chains wrapped around it. And that this was the jingling of the chains that he was hearing at night. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so we know the same story. Perfect. And if, if I might change the nature of my questioning now a little bit and, and going from history to a little bit more theory. Now in the introduction to your book on the restless dead, you wrote a sentence that I think is of enormous importance that I believe not only justifies the study of death, but that should also make people understand why ignorance in matters related to death is detrimental for their general understanding, not just of history, but also of their own culture and their own life. Now you say that ideas about death, about the dead, are basically ideas about the living. You say that this is because the world of the dead mirrors, as it works, it mirrors the world and reflects the world of the living. So understanding the beyond allows us also a better grasp on the world down here. 
I think this is, is, is an incredibly fundamental and important thought. Could you maybe elaborate this a little bit? What do you precisely and exactly mean? That what is of value in life to a culture is often thought to determine the conditions of, of the afterlife, whether you're going to be happy or unhappy after death. And a really good example is the one that I've mentioned a couple times already, that if you're a woman in ancient Greece and in many other cultures, if you're a woman who dies without producing children, you have failed in life because that's all that women were really thought capable of, of doing. So if you have not managed to do it, you've failed. And therefore, your afterlife is similarly going to be failed. You are going to wander restlessly forever between life and death because you're unfinished. You died too soon. So that's um, one fairly straightforward example. Another example is that the Greeks, uh, particularly during the, the early period when um, the action of the Iliad and the Odyssey is uh, set, but historically going forward in time as well, place a very high value for men, I mean, on glory. Um, and of course, for the ordinary farmer, farmer, perhaps this didn't matter so much, but for the upper class man, if you died without glory and honor, you were not going to have a good afterlife. So what I mean by that is that um, if you did not uh, really do a good job in war, if you did not cover yourself with honor and glory by what you did during war, you were going to be very low on the totem pole after death. You weren't going to get some of the good things that the really great warriors got. So um, it's almost, uh, well, it, it's to me really daunting to realize how closely afterlife beliefs are modeled upon um, what is valued in life. What I mean by that when I say it's daunting is it shows us how deeply ingrained these beliefs really are. If they are woven even into our beliefs about the afterlife, then they're going to be very hard for any culture to disengage from. So if you were to have a belief that, um, you know, nowadays we would consider uh, socially questionable, so to speak, such as, well, the only thing women are good for is bearing children, if our Western culture encounters some other culture where that is still held to be the case, we may not understand how difficult it is for people to change that attitude. Mm. And it's difficult in part because it's also their, their belief about what's going to happen after they die. Mm -mm. Yeah, thank you. And that's, that's, that's very interesting. And, and it actually goes really well with, with, the conclusive question that I would like to ask you. So if one can say that studying death is important to understand the life at that time, I think this can also be said about studying the history of death. And in your case, then, the understanding of the history of death in ancient Greece. Now, could you maybe say what for you is important today for our society and understanding death in ancient Greece and why we should still keep studying it? I think um, I'd go back to a metaphor that you used a moment ago and talk about a mirror. Mm. I think that the study of other cultures, particularly historically distant cultures, 
is always, at least in part, the act of holding up a mirror to ourselves and um, saying, wow, uh, is this what our culture is still like? Um, if not, why is our culture not like this? So in other words, it is a, and a very effective process of self-examination, at least when it's done, done well. In other words, if a professor is successful at, at teaching a class um, that is historical in nature, but the study of death in particular, I think, is important to conduct in this historical manner and to lead our, our students through it. Because for all the reasons that you and I together have mentioned during this conversation today, death lies at the very heart of being human. Mm -hmm. um, it's something that we all worry about. It's something that to the degree that um, our religious tradition teaches us we we can, we prepare for. It's, I don't think all of us necessarily realize how much it is an ongoing part of being alive. And studying the way that other cultures, including ancient Greece, address death, first of all, I think awakens us to how much it's part of our own life, but secondly, makes us then stand back and think, well, what are my personal presumptions? And how did I reach those personal presumptions. So it can launch the individual on a small voyage of self-discovery. Okay, thank you so much for this, Sarah. Thanks for this highly inspired talk. And thanks also- Thank you to, for having me. Thank you for being with us. Uh, thanks also to our listeners for having joined us in this second episode of this new podcast series of mine. And dear listeners, if you like our volunteer work here at PICT, you can now also consider supporting us by becoming an active member of our institution. For more information about how to join PIC, please visit our website. My name is Christoph Verhouten. Bye and thank you. Bye.